Well, imagine with me something of a, a ridiculous scenario. Let's pretend we're at the animal shelter adopting a new pet. And since it's imaginary, you can be adopting whatever you like, a, a cat, a dog, or a unicorn. You've picked a, a perky and precious pet, and the time has come for you to sign the paperwork to make it official. I assume you have to sign some paperwork. I've never adopted a pet. Now, imagine if that, that shelter volunteer, before signing the paperwork, pulls out her soapbox, standing on it, pulls out a script, and began reading. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this company to join together this person and this pet in holy adoption which is commended of St. Fido to be honorable among all men and therefore is not, to be, is not by any to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. Well, you'd probably be quite confused. It's a ridiculous scene, as serious as it is to take on the responsibility of adopting a pet, no one talks about it this way. I was quoting there with slight modification from a wedding liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer, a guide for services for the, the Church of England. In, in all the important commitments that, that we can make, marriage stands out as, as unique. Within the first few words, that's the beginning of the ceremony, a warning that it must not be done lightly, but with reverence, carefully, seriously, in the fear of God. That language reflects the attitude that the Bible has toward marriage. The Bible that calls us to let marriage be held in honor among all. Hebrews 13.4. Especially in a society whose views on marriage are constantly changing, we have to understand why is it that the Bible has such a high view of marriage? What is marriage and how are we called to honor it? And so today we return to our, our ongoing series in the gospel according to Matthew, picking up where we last were in October. In our sermon passage today, Jesus provides his view on on marriage, on divorce, and even singleness in response to some questions from some religious leaders. And what we find in our sermon passage is that, that marriage is no contract of convenience. No, we are to honor marriage and singleness as given by God and for God. Our sermon this morning, Matthew 19, 1 through 12, how to honor marriage. Matthew 19, 1 through 12, how to honor marriage. If you have a Bible, please open with me then to Matthew 19. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles provided for you there in the pew where you can find Matthew 19 on page 824. Matthew chapter 19. One of the best ways for you to stay engaged this morning is for you to, to have that Bible open as we'll refer back to it often. And while you, you turn there, let me introduce myself. My name is Kelton. I have the, the honor of serving as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. And I, if I haven't had the, 
the privilege of meeting yet, I'd, I'd love to greet you after our service. Well, since it's been a while, since we've been in the, the book of Matthew, uh, it's, we're going to do a little bit more review before we pray and, and read our passage. So Matthew, of course, is, is one of the accounts of the, the life of Jesus, of his mighty deeds and authoritative teaching, but not just of his, his life, but also of his, his death and his resurrection. You might remember that Matthew begins his account with a genealogy showing us that Jesus is the, the son of the King David and of the uh, patriarch Abraham. But he has more than just good lineage. This Jesus does what is predicted of him in the Old Testament. By my count, 10 times already, Matthew has told us that what Jesus is doing fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus has been teaching with authority, like in his Sermon on the Mount, calling people to follow him as if he himself were God. He's been healing and performing miracles, like raising the dead and, and walking on water. And as he's gained popularity through his miracles and teaching, he's come under the scrutiny of the religious leaders. At first, they just came with questions to to find out more about him, but, but now they're trying to test and to trap him. Well, in their questions, Jesus consistently po points his opponents back to the Bible, answering with wisdom and, and exposing their hypocrisy. And that brings us to Matthew 19. But, but before we read our sermon passage, please pray with me once more for, for God's help in our hearing and for the pro proclamation of his word. Let's pray. Father, your son Jesus himself teaches that, that, that those who hear his words and, and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. That when the, the storm comes, and, and great as the storm is, that the house does not fall. Or we pray this morning that you would help us to hear his words and not just hear them, not just even love them or believe them, but to, to do them. Father, you would give us this, this morning grace to honor marriage and singleness as given by you and for you, for the glory of the one that, that, that it points to, Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Read with you Matthew 19, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. The word of the Lord. Well, it's helpful to have the the main idea up front. What is this whole passage primarily about? So our main idea this morning, honor marriage and singleness as given by God and for God. Jesus is calling on us to honor marriage and singleness as given by God and for God. Here we see in, in response to the Pharisees' test, Jesus goes back to the Bible, explaining that, that marriage is something that God joins together and that, and that divorce was not God's original design for it. But he also affirms in response to his disciples that, that singleness too is given by God and is to be used for God. We are to honor marriage and singleness as given by God and for God. And we're going to have three points, one for each of Jesus' three responses to their questions and statements. So three points. First, the permanence of marriage in verses 1 through 6. Second, a permission for divorce in 7 through 9. And third, the possibility for singleness in 10 through 12. The permanence of marriage, a permission for divorce, the possibility for singleness. Well, let's start up at the top in our first point, which, which will be the bulk of the sermon, because the next two are really just reactions to this first point. So number one, the permanence of marriage. Number one, the permanence of marriage in verses one through six. Our passage begins in, in verses one through two with a, a short transition. What we have here is Matthew's way of, of signaling that his story is moving on to the next section. Some version of the phrase we have here when Jesus finished these sayings, shows up five times exactly in Matthew, each transitioning from one section of the book to the next. So Jesus has finished his teaching, what we studied last in Matthew 18 on sin and forgiveness, and now Jesus, it says, leaves, he went away from Galilee. He's, of course, followed by crowds, and he has compassion on them and and heals them. Galilee is a region in the north where uh, the site of his home base, where he's been doing most of his ministry in Capernaum and his hometown, Nazareth. But now he's, he's heading south. And after leave, leaving here in verse 1, he will not return to Galilee until after his resurrection, when the, the angels tell his disciples to, to meet him in Galilee. So from here on out in the rest of of Matthew until his resurrection, every time we see where Jesus is in the story, it is closer and closer to Jerusalem. Jesus here has set his face toward the purpose for which he has has come. He's not going to hide far in the north avoiding the public eye. He is resolute knowing what awaits him when he gets to Jerusalem. Lord willing, we'll study this soon in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. He knew this is where he was heading when he left Galilee. So friends, in his departure from Galilee, here right at the start, hear Christ's heart for us, that in love for his enemies, he willingly went toward the cross to suffer in our place for our sins. Jesus left Galilee, he left heaven to endure the shameful cross for the glory of God and for our salvation. But on the way, some Pharisees find him and in verse 3 ask him a question. Pharisees, you should be familiar with at this point in our study through Matthew, they're they're part of a a movement devoted to exact observance of of Jewish religion. Their name even comes from a word that that means to divide or or distinguish. So so naturally, these Pharisees want to come to, to the rabbi to get his thoughts on on what is a debated topic. But before we get to that topic, notice in verse 3, they came to him to test him and tested him by asking. Since chapter 12 of Matthew, some among the Pharisees have been conspiring to destroy Jesus. They've already tested him. You might remember back in chapter 16, asking him for a sign from heaven. So this is not a sincere question. They are looking for a reason to discredit, denounce, and and even destroy Jesus. Well, their question there in verse 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It's helpful to have some historical context for this question. In in the era around Jesus' life and ministry, there were two prominent Pharisees who taught different things about divorce. So Shammai taught that divorce was required in the case of adultery. Hillel agreed, but added that divorce was permissible for any cause. Like, and these are real examples, if a husband found a better-looking woman or if a wife burnt a meal. So there was a debate among the Pharisees about what the law permitted, and this was a debate about the law in Deuteronomy 24. So it's helpful for us to read that law for ourselves. It reads, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and you can read, follow along on the screen. It reads, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of the house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. That's the passage that's at debate among these these Pharisees. And really it's about that phrase in verse 1. Again, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. It doesn't define that indecency. So these Pharisees 
in their efforts to be exact in their observance of the law, disagree about what qualifies as an indecency. They agree adultery would qualify, but, but does it mean more? Well, that's the, the context for the question. Note, either way, the question is centered around the husband's right. They're debating what right the husband had, not the wife, when actually the point of the law in Deuteronomy was to protect the wife. More on that later. Well, well that's the question that they, they bring to Jesus. Verse 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What do you say about Deuteronomy 24? Are you of Shammai or Hillel? Well, Jesus responds without missing a beat. Jesus has the highest regard for Scripture, and He Himself is, is ready at a moment's notice to escape the trap of His opponents. His answer in verse 4, as if it's as plain as day, have you not read? Have you not read? He references two places they should have read, both in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, First, Genesis 1.27, at the end of creation, on the sixth day, God creates man and woman. And it, it reads, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's what he references first there in verse 4. And, and keep in mind, Jesus is answering in reply to their question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So he takes them back to the beginning, the, the way beginning, not just the first book of the Bible, but the first day mankind was on earth. God's purpose for marriage is revealed even in how he created mankind. He made them male and female. We honor marriage by remembering that gender itself is designed by God and given by God and even the diversity of two genders was created with marriage in mind. That's how Jesus connects them between verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, God created the male and female. So therefore, or, or for this reason, their creation as male and female, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. And you remember Genesis 1, this is good the refrain of, of Genesis 1, showing up at the end of every day, and God saw that it was good. And at the end of the sixth day, it's even stronger. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God's creation of mankind in two genders is a part of his very good design. He had good purposes in it. We can, we can speculate. He could have had other purposes, maybe had made creation with a single gender, or three, I guess, somehow. Nothing is impossible for God. But, but especially in our day and age, we need to be reminded of the refrain here in Genesis 1. It was good. It was good. It was very good. Gender is a good gift from a good God. Any confusion we have about gender is a result of the, the brokenness of sin, Genesis 3 not God's creation, Genesis 1. And you'll remember Genesis 3, the fundamental doubt Satan raises to Eve was to question God's goodness in his commands. It might seem arbitrary to us. Why have you made us thus, God? 
And the best antidote, antidote to the doubts about God's goodness is not even the creation as, as good as it is, but it is the gospel. The goodness of God, and therefore the goodness of all that he has created and commanded, is seen most brightly in the face of Jesus Christ. God is so good. He is so kind toward us, but especially in the giving of his son, his own beloved son, the, the very man that these Pharisees thought that they could have the right to test by their standards. Even though every one of us has spurned God and robbed him of the glory that is due to him, God has been patient toward us. Jesus came to to rescue those who reject him, to seek them out and pursue them like a shepherd after lost sheep that he loves. He was and he is gentle and clear. He is generous and compassionate. And and though he deserved all glory and praise from, from all men, he set his face toward Jerusalem to be betrayed and abused by those men and to suffer on the cross the wrath of God against sin in our place so that all can be forgiven and have eternal life. Is not God good? Can we not trust a God who does that? When we or the world around us doubts God's goodness, we must trace his goodness out from the center. If, if Jesus, the center, if the cross and resurrection are the revelation of God's goodness, we then can affirm all that Jesus affirmed too, that God created them male and female, and it was good. Well, that's not the only place Jesus takes the Pharisees. He also goes on to quote for them in, in verse 5, Genesis 2, 24. It's what we read earlier in our, our service. Well, just note in passing, Jesus here is an example of trusting the inspiration of the book of Genesis. He, he quotes it, even Genesis 1 and 2, and says, this is what God said. Well, because of the, the creation of man and woman, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or hold fast to his wife. Leave and cleave. This means that we in marriage, transfer our fundamental allegiance from parents to spouse. And these two, Jesus says, man and wife, are no longer two but one flesh. The, the union of a, a husband and wife is not merely a legal union, though it may include that. The, the union of a husband and wife shows up in physical intimacy, but it is much more than that. Physical in intimacy in marriage is a display of a deeper, real, spiritual union. To break this union is like tearing apart a single body. They are a single, indivisible unit. And how did they get this way? What is it that put them together like that? Maybe it's the vows that they, they said at their wedding ceremony. Or is it the officiant? deputized by the authority of the state to join them together. No, he says clearly in verse 6, God has joined them together. What therefore God has joined together. 
This is an act of God. Marriage, Jesus is teaching us, was created by God, is defined by God, and is joined together by God. Therefore, in light of all this, Jesus concludes for us, let not man separate. Of course, the, the one flesh metaphor can be pressed too far. But, but the point of the metaphor is that separation should not happen. God created a union that was designed to be permanent. Of course, that raises some other questions, questions that the Pharisees go in verse 7, which we will get to. But, but first, it, it must be said that we are called to honor marriage as given by God and for God. It is very clear here in Jesus' teaching that the marriage is something given by God. He designed mankind as, as two genders. He gives us marriage and joins us together in marriage all the way from the beginning. This is not something that shows up much later in the history of creation, but is there from day one. And I, I chose the opening illustration intentionally. The marriage of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 is preceded by Adam's pet adoption event, if you will. He sees and names every animal in creation there in Genesis 2. And what's the point of that? Well, the conclusion is that none are sufficient. No helper was found for him. So, for example, as wonderful as pets are, or as helpful as animals are in our diet, they are not flesh of our flesh. Nothing else in creation is. So God has given us marriage. But marriage is also for God. It is to display something about Him. So not only does Jesus quote from Genesis 2.24, but later Paul, in his teaching on marriage, in Ephesians 5.31, we'll quote Genesis 2.24. And after quoting it, just like we saw from Jesus here, he goes on to say in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That is, marriage refers to Christ and the church. Paul's argument here in Ephesians 5 is that the marriage refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is given by God to display the gospel to display in the husband Jesus' self-sacrificial love for the church and in the wife to display the church, church's humble submission to Jesus' leadership. This is what we confess together as a church, Stafford. What we read from paragraph 20 in our Confession of Faith. We say we believe that marriage was instituted by God, given by God, to image forth His triune glory and picture for the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why God made marriage. So we honor marriage because it is given by God and for God. It is meant to display his own love and our joyful following. To honor marriage is, therefore, to honor the gospel. Marriage was made because God himself is to be our husband. That is what we read of in, in Isaiah for both our call to worship and our assurance of forgiveness. Marriage is a picture of God's delight in his bride, in, in us. He says that, that our maker is our husband. He has called us as a wife deserted and grieved. 
Isaiah says that we were the unfaithful wife who left God, and in a brief moment, he hid his face from us. But the good news of the gospel displayed in the best of earthly marriages is that God had compassion on us. We are not forsaken. We are not desolate. And our God rejoices over us like a bridegroom over his bride. Why then do we honor marriage? Why must we enter into it reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God? Because it is given by God to tell us and the world about his very own character, his love and faithfulness. Let me remind you that marriage is temporary. There will be no marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. The picture will give way to the reality. Marriage is temporary, a sign. And knowing that should do two things for us. First, if if you're not married because you want to and have not, or because marriage has failed or, or spouses have died, it gives us the hope to wait for something better. Union with a spouse for decades is good. Union with Christ in perfect glory forever is far better. Temporary longing will give way to eternal satisfaction. And second, if you're married, this should help you stop looking for ultimate satisfaction in your spouse. Yes, your spouse is perfect for you because that's God's will. But as much as you love your spouse, I know that there are things that you would change about them, even if it's only their occasional sin or their health problems. Your spouse is not meant to provide everything you need. Only Christ is. Marriage is a sign to point you to the better spouse and redeemer, God. You were made for God and God made marriage to point us all to him. Honor marriage as given by God and for God. But we must continue. We also honor marriage as given by God and for God in the ways that sometimes we end marriages. Yes, marriage, as Jesus clearly teaches here, is meant to be permanent, but we live in a world broken by sin, and and such sin sometimes breaks marriages. Our second point, a permission for divorce. Number two, a permission for divorce in seven through nine. But clearly, The Pharisees understand Jesus' strong statement for the permanence of marriage, and that gives them another question. Verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate, a divorce, and send her away? If as you teach Jesus, marriage is not to be separated, why does God's law through Moses regulate divorce? Again, they're referring to what we read earlier, Deuteronomy 24 where in verse 1 it mentions writing a certificate of divorce and sending the wife away. And it's really important for us to emphasize that word in their question, command. Look, look at verse 7 again with me so we're all on the same page. page. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Remember, 
Both Pharisees, the debate at the time, Shammai and Hillel, agreed in the case of adultery, of sexual sin, the husband must divorce his wife. It was commanded. Jesus doesn't agree. Look at verse 8 in his reply. He says that Moses allowed, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce their wives. That's a big difference. And you'll find that true in Deuteronomy 24. Actually, Deuteronomy 24 was all about not allowing a man to divorce and remarry a woman after she had been remarried, I think to discourage men from spurious divorces and put women at risk. Deuteronomy 24 just assumes divorce, not commands it. If he divorces her, then this is what he cannot do. And why is that? Why? Does God, through Moses, grant this allowance? Verse 8, because of your hardness of heart. Because of your hardness of heart. In other words, because of your sin. Because of your rebellion against God. At the end of verse 8, Jesus makes it clear that, that this, when God made marriage, before there was sin, this wasn't so. Permission for divorce only exists after the fall because of, of sin. Divorce was not a part of God's original design, much like cancer and spider bites and floods. But they all exist now because of the rebellion of sin. In fact, divorce was given as a protection. Some sin in this fallen world is so vile that divorce is a better alternative. It is by, given by God as a concession to protect. It's, it's an imperfect analogy, but bear with me. It's something like getting in fire insurance for your home. Most houses never burn down, but fire insurance exists so that in the event of a fire, you have some recourse to deal with the consequences of the fire. It's a, a helpful provision for the worst circumstances. Well, divorce is permitted by God in a similar way. Just like houses, marriages are not meant to burn down. But God allows divorce in a very particular circumstance. He says in verse 9, sexual immorality, except for sexual immorality. Now, we won't be able to get into all the particulars of divorce this morning because it's so complex and dependent on circumstances. If, if you'd like, I can recommend some good resources that, that deal with the relevant passages with clarity. But, but here, Jesus is giving us one, one reason for divorce, for sexual immorality. It's a word that describes sexual sin. He has in mind not only intercourse with anyone other than your spouse, but, but other egregious sexual sins. Now, now certainly, there's a, a difference between, just like anger and murder, there's a difference between a lustful glance and physical adultery. So too, Jesus is not giving permission for, for divorce in all sexual sin, but, but egregious sexual sin, like but, but not limited to adultery. And why is it that, that Jesus, that God would allow divorce in the case of egregious sexual sin? Well, because it's an example of marital unfaithfulness. It is a violation of the one flesh union of marriage. Because we ourselves 
are sinners and we marry sinners, despite marriage's permanence, divorce is sometimes permissible. In fact, I think one of the strongest arguments that God allows for divorce is that he himself talks about divorcing his spouse. Just as we talked about in the first point that the marriage is designed to point us to our relationship with God, so too does God speak about divorce. In Jeremiah 3, God is referring to the divided kingdom that is Israel and Judah and how God has divorced Israel. Jeremiah 3.8, Judah saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. So here Jesus, or sorry, God says that he has divorced Israel for her adulteries. Certainly, if the Lord can divorce his adulter, adulterous spouse, then divorce must not always be wrong. But we have to consider how slow God was to divorce Israel. This is only after generation and generation of their faithlessness, God sending prophet after prophet in love to woo them back to him. God's original design for marriage is to be inseparable and lifelong. Even in the, the case of adultery, if there is genuine repentance, if, if Israel had repented, the spouse would forgive. That is, in fact, what Jesus had just taught us of his disciples in Matthew 18. We've been forgiven a far greater spiritual adultery against God. And he therefore calls his servants who have been forgiven to likewise forgive from the heart. Ideally, the couple will not divorce but pursue one another with the same loyal love that God has for us. Of course, that's, that's easy to say, but incredibly difficult to do. It's something that, that only someone empowered by the, the grace, love, and, and strength of God can do. Something that can, can really only be done in the community and love of the fellowship of the church. But we have to be clear here. The conclusion that he is drawing for us, certainly God never commands us to divorce, but, but sometimes... Forgiven sin still has consequences. The, the sin that, that breaks marriage can, can be so serious that, that even if forgiven, there's no path towards reconciliation. There could be disease or, or criminal charges involved. Again, God graciously permits divorce but does not command it. The, the New Testament will later give another grounds for divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, 15 of, of de desertion. It reads, Paul writing, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Again, in this permission for divorce, the underlying principle is the same. The, diverse, the desertion by the spouse, including by abuse, is a violation of the union of the one flesh marriage. Now again, we're, we're not. We can't say everything. But the emphasis here is that divorce for unbiblical reasons is sin. Because marriage is meant to be permanent. They're, the Pharisees' permissive view of divorce is a violation of God's standard. And reflects poorly of his faithful love. Verse 9 Jesus says that, that remarriage after an unbiblical divorce is adultery. It is 
unfaithfulness to your spouse. Brothers and sisters, this is a heavy topic. Divorce is always difficult. Whether it's something you've, you've gone through or it's the story of, of family or, or friends, it is like tearing apart a single body. It always leaves wounds. If you've been wounded by divorce, whether yours or another, whether it was justified or, or not, there is healing in Jesus. Remember, verse 2, the crowds followed him and he healed them there. Certainly, the, the healing spoken of here is, is physical healing, but, but Jesus offers far more than just restored bodies. He has the power to restore our hearts and souls here and now and perfectly from sin's ravages in the age to come. By his forgiveness and love, he makes all things new. It is said of him that by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is a near friend in all of our afflictions. The invitation is to draw near and, and you will find in him an all-sufficient rock in every storm. That his purposes and his kingdom are better than even the gifts and benefits of marriage. In church, we also must consider that we honor marriage by being faithful for life to our spouses. Husbands and, and wives this morning cultivate attraction to your own spouse. The Bible commands, Proverbs 5, 18, 19, rejoice in the wife of your youth, be intoxicated always in her love. I'd recommend if you're married, write down those verses, Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Go read them later. It's some of the easiest, most joyful verses to, commit, to obey in the Bible. Sex in marriage is like fire. When it's in the fireplace, where it's designed to be, it gives the house warmth, beauty, light. Who doesn't love sitting next to a warm fire? But outside the fireplace, it destroys the home. The gift of marital intimacy is to be tended and guarded like fire. It is a good gift in its place, but has the power to destroy when abused. If you think that your marriage is headed for divorce for whatever reason, please bring that into the light. Talk to a trusted friend here or to one of the pastors. Marriage is a gift from God, and, and it is our privilege as brothers and sisters to, to help one another in prayer, in counsel, to bring new life and, and joy to our marriages through Christ. I can assure you that Christ loves marriages because it is about Him. So whether you marry or don't, whatever you do, the call is to do all to the glory of God of God. Jesus affirms all that we do should be done for his kingdom in our last section and our third point, the possibility of singleness. Number three, the possibility of singleness in verses 10 through 12. It's not only marriage that we are to honor as given by God and for God. Singleness too, Jesus teaches, is to be honored as given by God and for God. 
Well, Jesus comes out of this discussion with the Pharisees as setting a high bar for marriage. It's not what his disciples are used to hearing. Look again at, at verse 10. The disciples said to Jesus, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. These disciples were accustomed to the more flexible divorce laws. To them, it seems like it's maybe best not to marry at all. Jesus replies in verse 11, he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Now he's referring to their answer that it is not, it's better not to marry at all. He is affirming that it's true. Their observation is true, but not for everyone. It is only for those to whom it is given. In other words, singleness too is something given, and of course given by God. Paul will affirm the same teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 8. He writes there, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am, that is single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul says that he is unmarried and that he wishes, he commends it as good that all were, that it is good to remain single. But he recognizes at the same time that singleness is a gift from God. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, it's, it's obvious to us that everyone is born single. And about half of us, sadly, who get married will experience it again when our spouses die. If that's you, if, if you're single, notice why God, why Jesus commends it here in verse 12. He talks of those eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for, why? The sake of the kingdom of heaven. A, a eunuch is one who has been castrated. He's referring here, I think, to, to true eunuchs, but then he turns it to a metaphor. He means that there are some who have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom. Singleness, in Jesus' mind, is not meant to keep you free from responsibility to be squandered in selfishness. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 7.32, the unmarried man, the single man, is anxious about the things of the Lord how to please the Lord. Paul there understands that, that the gifted, those gifted with singleness meant, are meant to be anxious about things of the Lord, to serve the Lord. Singleness is to be freed from some responsibilities, spouse and maybe children, to take on additional responsibilities for the kingdom. I think one of the greatest examples we have of this in history, it's not just the Apostle Paul, but our sister Lottie Moon. You may have heard of her name. The Southern Baptist Convention has named our, our annual Christmas offering for missions after our sister Lottie. Charlotte, or, or Lottie, was born here in Virginia in, in 1840. She gave her life to Christ and was baptized at First Baptist Church in Charlottesville. She actually, I just learned this this week, was one of the first women in the South to earn a master's degree. So she was an educated and wealthy woman. 
But despite her success in the world, she declined a marriage proposal and set sail at age 32 for China as a missionary. We have the privilege of knowing so much about our sister Lottie because she wrote hundreds of letters describing her work and asking for prayer and aid. So Lottie spent the rest of her life, I think over 39 years, as a single woman in the service of Christ as a missionary to China. She adopted Chinese dress. She learned Chinese and and customs. And she once wrote home to the foreign mission board, now the international mission board, please say to the new missionaries, they are coming to a life of hardship, responsibility, and constant self-denial. Lottie did not choose singleness because it was easy. She took a hard path of responsibility and self-denial for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Singleness is, is not a higher calling for the super spiritual like Paul and, and Jesus. It is a gift given to some because Jesus is worthy. What she had experienced herself and in the beauty and and love of Jesus, she wanted to share with others across the globe in China. It is normal for most people to get married. It's it's how our world continues to exist. People get married and have children. It's, It's how God designed the world. But now in the kingdom, some receive a particular gift to be anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please Jesus Christ, just like our sister Lottie. Giving yourself to Jesus in singleness is not a way to earn the kingdom. That has been freely given to the married, to the divorced, to the single. You can have access to the treasures of Christ's love, the Father's grace, and the Spirit's presence simply by faith. No, it's not a result of your works, whether married or single, so that no one can boast. If you believe in his death for your sins and rely on him for salvation, turning away from your sins, all the gifts of heaven are yours, married or single. But, but a king who gives so much to us freely deserves us to give ourselves completely to him in our marriages, and in our singleness. For some, that means a lifetime of singular devotion to Jesus in the gift of singleness. If you have that gift, whether designed by design or by providence, Jesus is calling on you here to use it well. You have, in singleness, freedom that others do not have, so spend it wisely. Spend it, might I suggest, in prayer and and study. Spend your time serving and discipling. Maybe even, like our sister Lottie, spend it by going across the world to bring the gospel to those who have never heard it. If you're single, consider what opportunities do you have that someone who is married might not have, and how can you make the most of those for the sake of the kingdom? Well, the way Jesus calls us to live, whether in marriage or in singleness, are like the tracks of a train. What I mean, the the tracks of a train tell us where 
we should go. It's, it's the design, the purpose of where the train should go. But the engine and fuel to go, to live life in a way that, that goes on the tracks, that, that honors marriage and singleness as given by God and for God, the power to do that can only come from the gospel. So I end where we began. Why is it that the Bible has such a high view, excuse me, of marriage and singleness? Why is it that the Bible has such a high view of marriage and singleness? It's because of the gospel. The gospel is the reason we honor marriage and singleness. If married, to display the gospel in the way that we love and submit to our spouses. If single, to magnify the gospel in the way that in verse 12, we are called to live for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. God has and always will be so good to us in the gospel, in Jesus Christ. He will, as a faithful spouse, hold us fast. So in that joy, we are to honor marriage and singleness as given by God and ultimately for God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as maker and husband. Lord, we come to you as the one who has designed marriage and given it to display your love and faithfulness, that we were made for you, to be loved by you, to be delighted over by you as a bridegroom over his bride. Father, we pray this morning that in the marriages of this body, in the, the singleness enjoyed by this body, Lord, we would display and live for the glory of the gospel. Lord, that in, in all that we do, we would do so for the glory of Christ, knowing that one day none of us will be in the marriages we are in now and none of us will be in the singleness we are in now. We will all be united as one bride to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would haste that day, Lord, that we would look forward to that day where the, the temporary, the shadow, the longings of this time will give way to their fulfillment forever. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.